Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. Well, hi again, everybody. I'm Tom Brenneman, and you are dialed in. As always, we thank our producer-engineer, Dave Armbruster, for all his outstanding work. You know, for nearly 30 years, he was the face of American sports. The National Football League, the NBA during the Larry Bird, Magic Johnson, into the Michael Jordan era, the PGA calling the U.S. Open, horse racing, Major League Baseball, and multiple Olympic Games. Bob Costas began his professional career on radio in Syracuse, New York. He's a Syracuse University grad. Started his career in 1973. It was seven years later. Think about that for a minute. You're 22. You get out of college. You're working radio in Syracuse. And by the time eight years later, you're 29, in 1980, he's hired by Don Olmeyer at NBC Sports. He was actually 28. <laughs> he looked about 17. I'm not so sure he looks much older than that now. But since then, you name it, he's done it. In fact, he's still doing it with the Major League Baseball Network calling games from time to time. So let's get it rolling. You are dialed in with Tom Brenneman, our guest. Coming up next, the legendary Bob Costas. Since 1882, Children's Home of Northern Kentucky has been a lifeline for children and families in crisis. Now known as CHNK Behavioral Health, its team of doctors, nurses, and therapists impacts nearly 4,000 kids and families every year. An array of mental health services including counseling, addiction treatment, and psychiatric residential care. CHNK also continues to care for abused and neglected youth who are in the state's custody. Right now, CHNK Behavioral Health is offering a free 10-minute conversation with a clinical therapist to help families dealing with the increased pressures caused by the ongoing pandemic. Visit www.chnk.org for more details or for the free conversation with a therapist, call one 844 Y-E-S-C-H-N-K. You're listening to Dialed In with Tom Brenneman, and our guest is Bob Costas. 28 sports Emmys, eight times national sportscaster of the year, in the Basketball Hall of Fame, in the Baseball Hall of Fame as a Ford Frick Award winner. Uh, you turn back the clock, Robert, to 1974. You are a senior uh, at Syracuse University, but actually the year before, you start your play-by-play career as voice of the Syracuse Blazers, if I have that correct. That's a minor league yep. hockey team in the Eastern Hockey uh-huh. League and the North American Hockey League. Was this something straight out of slap shot? Absolutely it was. My first two jobs, are the Blazers in the old Eastern Hockey League, the actual league that the Paul Newman movie Slapshot was based on. And I actually knew a lot of guys who were extras in the movie. And the character, Ogie Oglethorpe, the enforcer, he's based on Bill Harpo Goldthorpe of the Syracuse Blazers, with whom in that one year I had my own adventures and misadventures. And then right after that, I wind up in St. Louis for the last two years of the ABA with the Spirits of St. Louis, it's the Loose Balls League, if you ever read that great oh, book of course. By, by Terry Pluto. And your dad was, was in the ABA for a while. So 
the first three years of my career, by the time I was 24, I have been to the circus and back. <laughs> and I don't really have enough of a frame of reference to realize that here we are more than 40 years later, and that's still the craziest stuff I've ever yeah. experienced professionally, those yeah. three years. I mean, were you looking around? And look, you grew up outside of New York, right? So, I mean, it wasn't like you were yep. some uh, naive kid, you know, from maybe the middle of Ohio somewhere, right? I mean, you know, you had grown up, you'd seen some things, but all of a sudden, now you're, you're in your early 20s, you had to be looking around thinking, what in the hell is going on around here, and what have I decided to do with my life? Did you ever think that? Well, I I didn't doubt what I decided right. to do with my life. I was loving it. I was reveling in it. This is great. And I wasn't making a whole lot of money, but cashing any check at all. They're paying me to do this. This is so <laughs> much fun because, after all, you're a kid. But I had some sense. Like I said before, Tom, I had some sense that the old Eastern Hockey League and the late great ABA – were crazy but it was only in retrospect when i realized just how crazy they were because i've never experienced anything that comes close to either one of them you know bob i tell the story all the time when my dad was announcing as you remember with the virginia squires and and i was fortunate enough to be a ball boy for the visiting team and and Mm -hmm. i remember walking in the kentucky colonels of course who had dan issel and Artis Gilmore and Louis Dampier, they were always one of the better teams, if not the best team in the ABA. But, but, but I remember just walking in uh, one day, and Artis Gilmore, 7'2", 270 pounds, chiseled out of stone, long before guys were doing any weightlifting and that sort of thing. And, and he says to me about an hour before the game, he says, hey, kid, come here a minute, and hands me a $10 bill. And he says, run out and grab me a couple hot dogs and a Coke. I come back. Back in those days, it cost like four twenty-five for all three items he ordered. He looks at me and says, keep the change, which, of course, you thought that was all the money in the world. But I remember right. trainers taping up guys on the tables in the old ABA. The trainers are sitting there smoking cigarettes while they're taping a player up. It, it was outrageous. No, no question about it. And we traveled by commercial air, air travel. We didn't have charters. And that ties to, stop me if you've heard this before, (laughs) that ties to my favorite Marvin Barnes story. Marvin was the second player taken behind Bill Walton in both cases in the NBA and ABA draft the year he came out of Providence. So that's how good he was. And by natural ability, had he stayed on the straight and narrow, which was probably in retrospect impossible for him, I think he would have been among the 50 greatest players uh, introduced in 1997 uh, on the 50th anniversary of the NBA at the All-Star game. But he was... He was a terrific player, but he was a free spirit, to put it mildly. And here we are after a game in Kentucky, and we've lost as we usually did at Freedom Hall. And we gather for an 8 a.m. commercial flight from Louisville back to St. Louis. <laughs> Not that long a trip, but they're in different time zones. All right? So he beckons toward me, and he's been handed the itinerary from the trainer who is also, in keeping with what you were saying, he's also the traveling secretary. Right. He has both roles. So he says, bro, bro, look at this. I say, yeah. He goes, look at this. And it says, TWA, flight 305, depart Louisville, 8 a.m., arrive St. Louis, 756. And I say, yes. And he says, well, bro, I don't know about you, but as for me, I am not getting on any time machine. Oh, my God. That is <laughs> as good as it gets. How good is that? And, and you know, when I tell that story, People think, some people think, oh, that he wasn't too bright. No, he really was in his own way smart and funny, and he knew that that was funny, and he knew that I would get it, which is why he said it 
to me. Now, here's another one. The late, uh, the late and wonderful Steve Snapper Jones. Yes. He's probably best known to people from his work on NBC covering the NBA in the 90s. But he was a great ABA player. And he was toward the end of his career. And traveling on these commercial flights, the senior players had the right to sit in the best seat. So usually a player, a veteran player like that, would sit up front with the coaches. But he always sat toward the back of the plane. So I'm walking back toward the restroom on one flight, and there he is in the last row. And he had this kind of wise man aspect to him, like this world-weary, mm-hmm. I've seen it all, nothing faces me, you can't show me anything that I can't deal with, I've seen the whole passing parade. That was his whole thing. So I stop on the way to the restroom, and I say, Snapper, you could be up front. Why are you back here? And he says, young boy, have you ever read about one of these airplanes backing into a mountain? <laughs> that is great stuff. Golly, day, And that's the stuff that never happens anymore. You miss it so much. Right. I mean, heck, you miss it. In 1980, you get hired by Don Olmeyer at NBC Sports in an extraordinary, uh, unmatched, 40 years at NBC. I think a lot of people, be honest with you, Bob, I'm surprised when when I was doing some research getting ready for this uh, interview. You know, you did the game of the week starting, I think it was roughly in 1982. You you do that Mm -hmm. all the way to 2000. Vin Scully was the, the, the lead guy, the number one guy, most of those years for the game of the week. Not not entirely. But I think yep. if you were to ask the common person out there, you know, how many World Series on network television do you think Bob Costas did? I think they'd rip off, you know, like almost a Joe Buck-like number, you know, 15, 18, 20, 21. If, if I'm not uh, mistaken, you actually did not get a chance to call a full World Series. I know you stepped in from time to time, but that wasn't until 1995. Is that right? Yeah, and even in 95, uh, Al Michaels and I split it. There was no World Series in 94, and at that time, the networks were alternating, ABC one year, NBC the next. And so, uh, as a compromise, we split the game. He would have done a seventh game had there been one between uh, the Braves and the Indians, Mm -hmm. but as it turned out, I called the sixth game, and that's where it ended in Atlanta. So we each did three. And the first time that I did a full World Series was 97 when the Marlins right. uh, beat Cleveland in seven games. And then I did the Yankees sweep over uh, the Braves in 99. And the last baseball I did for NBC was the American League Championship Series in 2000 when the Yankees beat Seattle. And after that, they lost the contract, and that was that. Mm-hmm. When you think of all the studio work you've done, Bob, and I, and I don't know if this is possible to answer. I mean, all the years in the NBA, and, and you did play-by-play as well, in the National Football League, uh, the NHL, horse racing, boxing, we could go on and on and on and on. Was there a favorite chair for you to sit in? And I'm going to leave the Olympics out for the time being. We'll circle yeah. back to that in a minute. But but of all of those sports, was there one that, that, that you really enjoyed the most as far as the studio part of it was concerned? Yeah, the NBA on NBC in the 90s. I don't think, and you can factor in my bias, I don't think it's possible to do a better job with a sport in all respects. I agree. NBC I agree. The NBA in the I 90s. agree. Yeah, and, of course, we had a lot to work with. It was the Michael Jordan era. It was the tail end of Larry and Magic. Think of the players on the Dream Team besides Jordan. Think of the teams uh, that Jordan's te- Bulls usually vanquished. But it wasn't just that they were good. 
they had recognizable personalities. Yep. Malone and Stockton and Barkley and Isaiah Thomas. And then toward the tail end of that run, you've got Shaq and Kobe coming along. You've got David Robinson pairing with Tim Duncan. There was a lot of character and personality to that league. And I think it made a real difference that the games were on a full-fledged network. I'm not taking anything away from TNT or ESPN or the quality of their coverage. But the NBA in the playoffs was on in prime time on weeknights. And the promos for those games were on Johnny Carson and David Letterman and ER and Friends and Seinfeld and the Today Show. It was just much more a part of the full, broad cultural conversation. And the way we covered it, even John Tesh's round ball rock, people still get goosebumps mm-hmm. when they hear Yep. And I think, Tom, connecting to the Olympics, the idea that, um, yes, it's a, an important sports event and you want to analyze it in knowledgeable fashion, but it's also drama and theater. Think of the way we came on the air for those big games. Either Marv Albert or I would narrate some sort of piece that was designed to make you feel, before the tip-off, I'm not going anywhere. Mm-hmm. I'm not, I'm, I'm not going to miss one second of that. And then you had Marv on the call most of the time. And for a few years, including the last dance here, I did it. Mm-hmm. Uh, the way they were produced, the way they were directed, the way they were broadcast, you know, that, that's just something I look back on with, with real fondness. And, you know, some of us in the business are, are perfectionists. And it's a great thing, I guess, if you're trying to do as well as you possibly can. But sometimes it's a curse because I don't know about you, but I look back on stuff that I've done and people seem to really love it. And I say, well, it could have been 5% better. Yeah. Or why didn't I say this instead of saying that? But there isn't much about the NBA on NBC in the 90s that I would change. I mean, it's just a wonderful experience. Bob, your name has been mentioned. I, I don't know how serious uh, if there was much to it, but but obviously your name has come up hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of times through the years about a guy who would be an excellent commissioner for Major League Baseball. Number one, uh, has anyone ever seriously spoken to you about that idea? And have no. you ever seriously considered ever perhaps wanting that job? Again, a resounding no. <laughs> uh, Why? The, you know, the analogy, Tom, I've always used is this. If you think somebody is a good political columnist, that doesn't mean that you think he or she should be president of the United States or a Supreme Court justice. It just means you appreciate whatever it is that they contribute to the public discussion of an issue. And I hope I've said a few things over the years that people think made sense about baseball because I really care about the game. But I don't really have the background as a business person, nor do I have the necessary demeanor for all the backroom wrangling and arm twisting and politicking. It's just not who I am. So uh, I think for, you know, I've I've tried to do as well as I can in the role that I have. And I hope that I've, that I've done more things right than wrong, but I was never interested in, nor in my view, remotely qualified uh, to be the commissioner. Um, I I sat with George Will every time um, visiting broadcasters, at least those that have had a chance to meet him through the years. Every time we go Mm -hmm. into Washington, D.C., Uh, He really enjoys taking the local broadcasters of the visiting team out to lunch. And you'll get to talking. Of course, we want to talk about politics. He wants to talk about baseball. You know how that works. Um, You know, he said something to me last summer. He said, analytics 
is the best thing that ever happened to the pitcher. It's the best thing that ever happened to the batter. And it's the worst thing that's ever happened to the game. How do you feel about that statement? And how do you feel about the effect uh, of analytics on the game we both love so much? I am with him on that, Tom. Analytics may be good for giving you a winning edge, but it's not good for baseball as an entertainment product. It's just not. Baseball is supposed to have a pleasing, leisurely pace. It's what sets it apart from other team sports, and it's always been a strength. But you can go too far. And now baseball too often has a plodding and lethargic Mm -hmm. pace. And the home run is something very exciting. Babe Ruth revitalized baseball. Uh, Hank Aaron chasing Babe Ruth will leave Barry Bonds aside. That's a different circumstance. The great sluggers are part of the lore of the game. But when the home run becomes so commonplace that it's no longer a punctuation, it's just kind of ho-hum, then I think something is lost. They're not as, there are not as many baseball plays as they used to be. Right. Guys running the bases, ball hitting the gap. By definition, if more outs come on strikeouts as a percentage, you're going to see if Ozzie Smith was playing today, you'd see fewer chances for him making Ozzie Smith-type plays. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the, game, the game has a texture to it, and that texture has been altered. It's too much of a power game, too much strikeouts, too much home runs, and that leads to too much standing around. And then if you're changing pitchers all the time, not only do I think does that take drama away? There was something dramatic. We don't want to sound like old-timers here, but there was something dramatic about Tom Seaver or Bob Gibson in the eighth or ninth inning, removing their cap, running their forearm over their forehead, wiping their brow, looking at Willie Stargell and saying, I struck him out in the first with the slider, but he hit the fastball into the corner for a double in the fifth. And now there's two men on in the eighth, and nobody's looking to the bullpen. Because, damn it, they're Tom Seaver and Bob Gibson. Yep. And he's really Stargell, and here we go again. I don't know that someone who's a 15-year-old baseball fan appreciates that, how just deliciously dramatic that was. And we've lost a lot of that. I, I don't know if you agree with me, you know, Bob. I, I'm pretty sure we're on the same page of this entirely just based on what you said. But I, I just I, – I almost get offended. I think it's because uh, of my love for the game just like yours. I, I get offended when uh, modern-day players uh, or those running the front office and, of course, in, in many cases now – uh, analytics is being driven from up top all the way down to the players, most of them completely embracing it, all of them all on board, and that's fine. But when you suggest to them that there are issues with the product and the entertainment value of the product, as you're suggesting, and when they just completely blow it off and say, we don't need to make any changes in baseball, I always say, you know, that, that, that's sort of like a, a Procter & Gamble based right here in Cincinnati saying, well, you know, Tide detergent might be X, but but it's good enough and we don't need to make any changes. Whereas if we make a, maybe a subtle change here, subtle change there, you know, your sales go tenfold. Are you struck the same way I am in that regard? Yeah. I think everybody in the game has got to take a broader view. How do we modernize? How do we adjust and react to modern circumstances while still holding on to the appealing essence of the game? And part of that essence, is that, generally speaking, it's recognizable from one generation to the next. How do we make it more appealing? Because, after all, everyone's economic interests 
comes down to ultimately how popular is the game, which directly connects to how much revenue can be generated. I think there's too much short-sightedness and too much of a narrow vision. Here's our interest. Here's our focus. And not enough of a broad vision that takes into account all the dynamics that you're talking about, Tom. Turning uh, to the Olympics, uh, and look, there's so much ground you could cover on there, and and, and we're not going to go bit by bit here, but 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 a couple of things I want to ask you about. Um, was there one moment or one person during any of the Olympics that you've covered that almost left you speechless? Yeah, and this is my answer to that question. Stipulating Usain Bolt, uh, recently Simone Biles, the greatest gymnast of all time, Michael Phelps with victory after victory, and I'm leaving people out like Jackie Joyner Percy and and Kathy Freeman in Australia because it meant so much to the host nation. Uh, I could make a list of two dozen like that. But when asked to pick one, it's Muhammad Ali lighting the torch in 1996 in Atlanta. Mm -hmm. It was such a well-kept secret. It was Dick Ebersol's idea. He ran NBC and the Olympics at that time. It was his idea, a closely kept secret. Maybe only a dozen people knew it was going to be Ali, and two of them were not, Dick Enberg and me. Ebersol said to us during the meetings leading up to it, I'm not going to tell you who it is. You're kidding. We didn't know. He said, you'll instantly recognize him or her. But I want your reaction to be as spontaneous as the people in the stadium and the people watching on TV. So Dick and I immediately begin to run every possibility through our heads. <laughs> We're thinking this has to be momentous. Otherwise, he wouldn't have framed it this way. But we didn't know it would be L.A. And when he stepped out of the shadows, and that's the way they staged it, literally out of the shadows and into this huge spotlight and took the torch from the great swimmer, Janet Evans, you heard something in that stadium that I've never heard before or since in an arena or ballpark, Tom. Audible gasp. And it took like two or three seconds before those gasps turned into sustained cheering Mm -hmm. and applause. And there were so many thoughts and emotions built into that. You know, who he was, who he had been, who and what he now was, all the controversies that now seem to have been reconciled into overwhelming appreciation and respect. And Ali himself told us subsequently that he felt as if the last chapter of his life began that night. Uh, and it meant so much to him to, to realize that no matter how much he might have been criticized and no matter how much of a polarizing figure he once had been, he never had to back away from any of his principles. Mm-hmm. But in the long run, he won people over. Speaking of the Atlanta Olympics, um I, I don't know how much reporting, Bob, you had to do where you actually had to say the name uh, on NBC, Richard Jewell. Clint Eastwood mm-hmm. comes out and produces and directs uh, the Richard Jewell story. I'm assuming you've seen the movie. Yes. All right. Well, what were your thoughts uh, then as opposed to now when you see the movie? And I'm not suggesting everything in the movie is 100% accurate. I don't know. I don't know if anybody will yeah. ever know, but it's a tragic, tragic story. I- I'm just curious as you look back on the whole thing, what are your thoughts about that? Well, it's interesting. When I watched it with my kids at a theater, 
I could recognize some of the moments that were almost direct replicas of broadcast situations I had been in. But there was no one represented who was supposed to be me, which was fine. There was no reason for that. But I, I turned to Keith and, and to Taylor, my son and daughter, and said, that's me he's talking to. Or that's the question I pose. I asked that question. They're just showing the answer to that question. Um, and what happened with Richard Jewell, it's an interesting story. Uh, I said at one point, and I didn't think this was particularly noteworthy, but I guess it was in retrospect. I said, aren't we rushing to judgment here? What if it turns out he's not guilty? Mm -hmm. They haven't charged him yet. They haven't arrested him yet. But in this context, with the world watching the Olympics, his name is out there. Where does he go? If he's not the person, where does he go to get his reputation back? And the answer was that this is an FBI tactic. What they're doing is called sweating a suspect, try to put pressure on him, and eventually he'll crack and admit it. But you can't admit to something you did not do. Okay, fast forward a year to the NLCS in Atlanta. The Braves are playing the Marlins, and I'm doing the game on NBC. And the stage manager taps me on the shoulder between innings and says, Bob, Richard Jewell is outside the broadcast booth. He'd like to speak to you. And I have no idea what this might lead to. And I say, okay, wait till the next half inning and bring him in during the commercial. He comes in very shy and unassuming, kept referring to me as Mr. Costas, even though I kept saying, please call me Bob. And he said, I just came to say thank you. Mm. And my mother wants to thank you. You were the only one who was fair to me. Now, I don't know if I was the only one, but I guess I was among them. And his sincerity just struck me and how deeply meaningful this was to him. And so I said to him, would you like to stay and watch the rest of the game from here? And what baseball fan wouldn't jump at that opportunity mm -hmm. to watch it from the perspective of, of the broadcasters? And he said, oh, no, Mr. Costas, I would just be in the way. I don't want to bother you. I just wanted to thank you. And he said again, and my mother wants to thank you. I'll never forget that. I'm sure you will not. That is an incredible story. Uh, the, the athletes you cover in the Olympic Games, 99% uh, of them, uh, you know, notwithstanding uh, the, the professional basketball players and come in, and, and obviously some of them are making money, endorsement money, in, in whatever particular mm -hmm. sport they're in. Um, but at the end of the day, uh, of all the Olympic Olympians in the various sports that some people have never heard of, most people never follow, most people never watch until the Olympic Games come around, what strikes you about the Olympic athlete compared to the quote-unquote big money entitled professional athlete? Yeah. You know, I, I said this first, I think, in 96 in Atlanta, and then it became uh, kind of a standard observation for me at each Olympic. Keep in mind, just as you said, Tom, the vast majority, sometimes I would say this during the opening ceremony, at a Summer Olympics, you got some 200 countries, around 10,000 athletes. The vast, vast majority of these athletes come here with no reasonable hope of winning a medal of any kind. They're here to do a personal best that they can and to test themselves on sports' biggest stage. And even for those who are medal contenders, they prepare for four years for a moment that may last only seconds, depending upon the sport, 
uh, and at most lasts a brief period of time. When we get to the Super Bowl or the World Series, those are the biggest events, but we know who these people are. We follow them. There's a focus on the regular season game. Most Americans don't pay much attention to swimming or track and field or gymnastics or whatever it might be outside the context of the Olympics. So for a lot of these athletes, it's like stepping out of relative obscurity onto the biggest stage in all the sports. But if they don't get it done now, it's another four years before they have another chance. It isn't like lose the World Series and spring training comes around in a few months. Mm -hmm. It may be four years before they get another chance. And maybe this is their one chance in a lifetime. And that, I think, both for the top-level competitors and for your garden-variety Olympian, if there is such a thing, that's what sets the Olympics apart from the other sports. A few more minutes we're visiting with Bob Costas. And, Bob, we appreciate your time. And this has been uh, just an, an incredibly enjoyable for, for, for me. Um, I remember one of the, the, the more recent times I saw you, and, and I was telling this story to a buddy of mine, our producer, Dave Yiddy Armbruster, before we went on the show today. I said, one of the last times I saw Bob Costas, I'm staying and you're staying at a hotel in downtown Atlanta. I come walking mm-hmm. out the front door. There's this old beat-up Impala, I think it was, and the trunk is open, and some guy's bent over, sifting through a bunch of clothes that looked like they came out of the 1970s. That guy happened to be you, and I asked you if you remember, what in the world are you doing, Bob? And you were talking about filming episodes of Brockmire. Now, yeah. you, you've been in uh, TV shows, you've been in movies, you've done it all. How much have you enjoyed doing that kind of thing? Uh, well, Brockmire which is over now. Uh, I guess I had a three-season run. But all of us baseball broadcasters loved Brock Meyer. Um, and when Hank Azaria sent me the first season, he sent me all eight episodes of the first season and said, what do you think? I immediately, after binge-watching them, contacted him and said, you have captured the generic baseball announcer. You know, this kind of guy <laughs> in the 60s and 70s, and we all know him and have heard him, this kind of like, Here's the two-two pitch, oh, yeah. curveball outside. You know, fans, tomorrow night is uh, T-shirt night at the ballpark. You <laughs> want the youngsters to come out and, and get that beautiful Cincinnati Reds T-shirt. Not that you or your dad ever sounded like that. <laughs> oh, no, I believe me, he did. That I can tell you. <laughs> <laughs> so, so is Aria, who, of course, is a whiz with voices, all those voices on The Simpsons and everything else. He nails this Brockmeyer character. And because it's on cable TV, they're able to go into some places you couldn't on network television. So this was already a thing. By the time I did my segment with them, uh, it's already a thing. And everybody in baseball knows about it. And part of what we were shooting was to be some kind of throwback documentary thing. So they wanted me wearing these like 1970s jackets with the huge lapels. And they tried to blow my hair out to where it was <laughs> sure. as long as it was in that glimpse uh, uh, on the last dance of me at WGN in the late 1970s. Um, so it, it was it was really fun. Plus, I got to curse on television. So. <laughs> yeah, that's always fun. Hey, right. the the the. Um the, the the late night show you did, w- w- I used to watch that show all the time, and and, and, and obviously the guests that you would get on there, uh, I mean, you talk about one end of the spectrum to the other. I mean, whether it's, uh, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, Charlton Heston, 
I believe you actually yep. had on that show at one point in yep. time. And, and then the other end of the planet, right, uh, Ozzy Osbourne. Um, were there one or two figures as you look back on that? And I don't know whether, whether it was a preconceived notion about what you thought this person might be like, uh, perhaps you, you had thought, oh, they have to be like this, or they got to be like that, that that all of a Mm -hmm. sudden, once you were finished, you walked away and you said, wow. You know what? Once this conversation is over, probably a half dozen will occur to me. That'll be better answers than the one I'm about to give you. But one that comes to mind is Paul McCartney, because at that time, McCartney had not done a full-length American television interview in some 10 years. The world has changed, and now you're apt to see almost anybody, no matter how big a star they are, on Access Hollywood or Inside Edition Mm -hmm. or Entertainment Tonight or on any of the late-night shows. But then it was a real coup to get somebody like McCartney. And as an aside... One of the things that helps with that show is that a lot of entertainers or ball players or people who have unusual schedules were up late at night and they watched it. And a lot of them, I think, said to themselves, hey, this is different. This isn't the standard soundbite show. This has maybe a little bit of a different feel and we mm-hmm. hope a little more depth to it. So McCartney was willing to do it. In retrospect, I shouldn't have been surprised, but I'm sitting there thinking, my gosh, Paul McCartney's going to walk through this door. And we had to register him under an assumed name. Because this is only a decade after John Lennon was shot. So he had to have uh, a little more security uh, than you might have guessed. Sure. And he registered under it. He signed in in the lobby under an assumed name and came up the, uh, the, the freight elevator. And I'm thinking, this is the guy who I sat on my living room floor with my mom and dad watching him in 1964 on the Ed Sullivan show Mm -hmm. when I was 11 years old. And I wonder if anyone I went to grade school or high school with is going to be watching this. And here's Bobby Costas talking to Paul McCartney. (laughs) So I was very well prepared, but I was very, very nervous. And he put me at ease immediately. The most down to earth, likable, unassuming, you know, fame is one thing. We've all known famous people. We're talking about mega, mega, mega fame. And yet he was as down-to-earth a guy as you could ever come across. And that put me at ease in the first two, three minutes. And it made the, what happened subsequently all the better. It was just like two guys talking after that. And it was so disarming that someone that famous could be that much of a regular guy. Final question, Bob. Um, as a play-by-play guy at heart, and, and, and you know, look, uh, to what degree uh, the average person at home understands and that line certainly has been moved and skewed as the years have gone by uh, mm-hmm. and many of the decisions uh, you know lead play-by-play guys in this sport or that sport have come from the studio and they're not the the, the old vintage quote-unquote play-by-play guy but 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 I've always thought uh, in being around you and watching you that at the end of the day you were still that play-by-play guy at heart. Were you ever totally yeah. satisfied uh, through your incredible career at NBC uh, that most of your work came in a studio rather than broadcasting a game? Well, for the most part, Tom, yes, because in the 80s and 90s, even though I was hosting the Olympics and for the most part hosting the NBA and hosting a lot of the football stuff, we still had baseball a good portion of that time. And I still called some of the basketball games and I had the late night show, which you 
mentioned. And I thought all those things were truthful to who I was, not just as a professional, but as a person. I was really connected to them. So it was authentic for me. In the last decade at NBC, through nobody's fault, they don't run NBC for my benefit. You know, it's a business. And they didn't have the NBA for a long time. Mm -hmm. And they didn't have baseball. And I was creeping up on having hosted a dozen Olympics. And I'm not saying it became old hat, but the formats changed. They were a little more restrictive. It wasn't as freewheeling as it was uh, the first many times I hosted the Olympics. So at that point, in the last, you know, seven, eight years at NBC, it wasn't that I didn't enjoy it. I just wasn't as connected to it uh, as I previously had been. And I really think that the stuff that I've done over the last many years at the baseball network is truer to me yeah. than much of what I did at NBC. Um, and I think people can sense, even though the audience is smaller, at this point in my life, I don't care. Mm -hmm. I'd rather do something that X number of people see, and I think it's really good and it's really true to who I am, than something that 10 times X see, and I'm only doing it with professionalism but without personal connection. Mm -hmm. So at this point, it's that stuff that's more gratifying to me. Um, but you're right about your general observation that, that I'm a play-by-play -play guy and, and a baseball and bas basketball guy, really, first. Well, Bob, I can't thank you enough for um, uh, giving us your time today. You've been so gracious and classy, as always. Uh, and we're always rooting for nothing but great things for Bob Costas, no matter what it is you decide to do. And uh, we thank you for your friendship, for your incredible work. And I used the word earlier because I think it's such an important word in doing what we do for a living. People have trusted you for a long, long time. It may not be necessarily what your bosses all the time want to hear. It may not be all the time what the audience wants to hear. Uh, but you, you have never been afraid to to lay it out there and, as you say, be true to who you are. And, and for those of us that uh, uh, have tried uh, from a distance to follow in footsteps like yours and others, we say thank you. Um, thank you very much for having me on. Please say hi to your dad, and we'll talk soon. All right. All the best, Bob. Thank you. Thanks, Tom. You've been listening to Dialed In with Tom Brenneman. We can't thank Bob Costas enough for his time. What a show. What a show. Could talk to that guy probably for, for days and listen to his stories about all of the different events and the things that he has done and continues to do. Just an unbelievable guest, and we thank him so much for his time. All right, we'll look uh, forward to catching up with you next week. Again, we thank our producer and engineer, Dave Armbruster. I'm Tom Brenneman. Until next week, stay dialed in.
Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.